Welcome to Sunburnt Country Music, interviews with Australian country music artists. My name is Sophie and I have been interviewing Australian country music artists for over a decade and I still love it. I love their stories, I love their insights and I love their music. So I hope you enjoy hearing from them on this podcast. Freya Josephine Hollick has released several albums, the most recent in 2018 called Feral Fusion, but she now has a new one called The Real World and it is a brilliant collection of cosmic country songs and I'm going to talk to her about them. Hello, Freya. Hello. How are you? I'm great and very happy to talk to you about your music. I've been a fan for many, many years. And the first time I heard your music, I had the impression that it was sorcery in the best possible way and when I listened to the real world for the first time I really felt like I was under some kind of spell from the start so I'm wondering therefore if you actually do practice sorcery (laughs) um I definitely believe in magic 100% as you would probably be able to gather from the album cover the crystal ball and things um it's a great cover too oh thank you yeah that's my friend Ryan took that photo but I had this concept for quite a while during lockdown I had a lot of time to sort of explore the more ethereal arts things like tarot and and crystal ball and all that kind of stuff I'm definitely a fledgling with it but I think with songwriting there's a natural kind of magic that comes with um weaving words and music together yeah yeah Yeah. Have you felt that from the start of your songwriting process or when did you actually start writing songs? I started writing songs when I was really young. Um, My mum actually has in a file some songs that I wrote from when I was about five years old. So, um, but properly started writing when I started learning guitar when I was around 14, 15 Mm -hmm. and um, have been practicing it as a, as a daily or, you know, at least weekly practice since then. So it's been nearly 20 years of fairly solid practice of writing music. Yeah. Did you start learning guitar so you could write songs or so you could sing along with the songs you were writing sort of yeah, you know, play so along was, with the songs you're writing <laughs> I was learning classical flute right. and um I learned that for six years or something and my brother was learning the guitar and I was so envious of him because he could write you know he could play rock songs and whatever you know he was playing velvet underground songs and stuff and I thought oh it's seems like a bit more fun than playing the flute and he can sing at the same time so <laughs> I am um, I only took up guitar because of my brother so I have him to thank for for all of this yeah yeah the flute is a bit limited um <laughs> in terms of contemporary songs yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> um but in thinking about the real world I was wondering if there was a unifying theme if you had a unifying theme in mind when you wrote it um or if one tended to emerge because it's uh, even though the songs are different it, it seems to me like they they tell a cohesive story yeah well I wrote these songs some of them are quite old some of them are like six years old the songs off this record and some of them are um I wrote sort of in the two months leading up to when we went into the studio in Joshua Tree um at the start of 2019 so there's a bit of a breadth of songwriting on there and I've I've um you know there's still music from around that time that I haven't released and that isn't on the record so it was really it was more the songs that were chosen. I sent about 20 songs over to Buick Six and between them and me and the other musicians that I was working with, we landed on this group of songs as the ones that we were going to record. So, um, yeah, it's they they tie together well, but I think that's a lot to do with the production. Um, right. Roger 
Berger does from Union Street Studio in Brunswick West um, and his editing and his clever kind of, you know, way of weaving things together in post-production. So you say there are some songs out there that were recorded but not released. Are they another album or are you just thinking they're sitting there and you'll do something with them? Well, I I probably have about four records worth of music that I haven't released that I've written throughout the past three years since we recorded this record and then songs that were written for this record that didn't make it onto this record for whatever reason. I still believe in them and stand behind them as strong songs. But, um, yeah, so the plan will be to fairly quickly follow this record with another record um, as soon as we're able to. Yeah. Well, that's good. I, I, that's good news for me. <laughs> Sorry, loves your music. I'm like, great. There's more out there. <laughs> oh, that's lovely. <laughs> but I'm finding the lyrics for this song, and I'm going to read this question because um, because your songs deserved a lot of consideration when I was writing the questions, and so sometimes I'll just glance over. But I I was found as I was writing these questions, they they were quite long. So please okay. forgive me for reading this, but. In your lyrics and in your voice, I hear a great deal of understanding of the human condition without trying to be grandiose about it. And I also hear the way you connect with the listener, but also how you're not demanding anything of the listener, which is a really interesting and delicate balance, I think. There's a calm control in the way you deliver the songs that makes it really easy for the listener to sit back and receive rather than, I think, you saying, well, now I want you to give me something as a listener. And I'm wondering if that's something you intended when you were recording, that um, maybe it was just how you intended to connect with the listener. Um, I don't think it was done on per- It's not something I was consciously doing, um, but artists that I love, people like Towns Van Zandt and Willie Nelson, I think have that ability to do that. So that's a huge compliment. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think also through the course of um, the making of this record and the writing of the songs, I did go through a spiritual awakening that I think uh, changed my perspective of how I wanted to communicate with audiences how I wanted to communicate with the listener and I think it was just a natural progression of like well what do I like about you know it's it wasn't again it wasn't something that I sat down and thought about but I think just in a natural evolution and uh, maturing of my own um you know spiritual self my own soul and whatever Mm -hmm. when I sit down to listen to music I want music to ask nothing of me and to just hold me you know right I I definitely set about doing this with the intention of holding people with the songs but I until now didn't know whether it would do that or not so (laughs) thank you (laughs) well it certainly did for me and I do and I do only say it if I hear it um and I think it's and I know that you have a practice as a as a meditator and um and I think that this is the sort of thing that that sometimes really only comes out of that kind of practice where you, you're doing a lot of work in showing up regularly um, for the practice and for yourself, but there's a sense of offering it up to something bigger that, yeah, Absolutely. I think meditation is a way of trying to connect to the global energy grid for lack of a better term or whatever it is. So I, I wonder if you felt that that your experience in meditation actually, well, you said, you know, spiritual practice, spiritual awakening, but whether that experience as a meditator directly led into how you created the album. I think that it did. Yeah. I mean, I'd been, I wasn't, I didn't have as rigid or as um, consistent a practice when I was writing the songs for this or when we first started recording but I think, again, a lot of it is in the what we did when we brought it back to Australia and you can hear that um, evolution spiritually, that meditative journey mm-hmm. 
throughout the course of the record, even through songs that were released sooner than the ones that were released later or, you know, that still haven't been released yet from the record. Um, but I do think that there is that element of service that comes from um, things like meditation and yoga and, and you know, any kind of spiritual practice um, that I think music taps into as well. I think that when people that I know or my friends that write music um, or play music, play an instrument or whatever, when they are deeply, when they give themselves to that, it is the same place that you feel when you go into a deep meditation. It's definitely that, um, that soul place uh, where you're existing and being and very present. And, um, you know, that, that happens every time I write a song. So, and I didn't know what it was until I started meditating more regularly. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You've also said that for um, many people, 2020 was a write-off, but for you, it was an, it was an awakening. And I think that also comes from your practice or, or I suggest it comes from your practice because you basically trained for the moment when there was stillness and inactivity um, yeah. and you could make something of it. Yeah, it happened sort of um, at the end of 2019. So this, this recording started at the start of 2019 mm-hmm. and I was feeling elements of deep presence and things, not fully understanding how to meditate but trying to and not fully understanding when I was unconscious. I, I didn't have much self-awareness and I was sort of teetering on the edge of, you know, what they call the dark night of the soul where you mm-hmm. go through. When I came back from America, I, I went through that um, huge transitional sort of towers burning kind of thing that happens when your life falls apart in the mm-hmm. um, undertow of a, of a spiritual awakening. Yeah. And then I thankfully survived that and came out the other side with this new resolve um, that, and then, you know, the, the lockdowns happened and uh, it, I'd had this six months prior to really invest in a meditative practice and a yoga practice. And um, so I had all the tools to deal with being shut away, you know, and quite happy <laughs> with that, <laughs> which sounds ridiculous, but it was just a nice kind of, you know, it was sort of like an oasis of calm for a yeah. couple of years. Yeah. At this point, I should say I've been teaching yoga for 20 years and oh, wow. practicing for quite a lot longer. <laughs> and my yeah. teacher is in um, a Kashmir Shaivist tradition. So you're talking about the burning towers. So in Kashmir Shaivism, there is a, a text called the Vinyana Bhairava Tantra. It's a revealed text. And there is a verse in it that talks about um, dipping your big toe into the flame and then everything that burns is the not self. And so it seems that for you, that's that's pretty much what's happened. Everything that's burnt with for you in the spiritual making is the not self and you have come to this place of authenticity that you could then reveal in your music. Yes, absolutely. I would 100% agree with that. That's amazing that you've been teaching yoga for that long. I've just started teaching yoga. All oh, right. Yeah. Well, we could have an offline conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll stick to the music, but it's, but yeah, because I guess my, I bring that background to listening to your music. And even before I'd read about your meditation practice, there was something else going on in the music. And I do think it's that, you know, you were, you were saying that idea of service in yoga is Ishvara Pranidana, which is offering, offering it up to um, a higher power to source, whatever you'd like to call it. Uh, and that is an intention, I think, that's settled deep within the artist's that is not conscious when you're recording or performing, but it really is the foundation of everything. And I can certainly hear it when it's there oh. as I heard it in your music. 
Oh, that's such a lovely compliment. That's, you know, exactly the intention of, of this record was to, um, you know, reach people on that level. So that's, that's a really beautiful compliment. Thank you. Yeah. Well, it's, as I said, I say it if I hear it. Now, you, <laughs> you as you, you mentioned that you recorded this in 2019, um, you went to Joshua Tree and, um, and that's quite a commitment to go to a different country and be there. And of course, it's now 2022. And I imagine that you had some different plans for this album. Oh, yeah, big time. So we released um, Feral Fusion in 2018. And the plan was to go into the studio at the start of 2019 and release this record at the end of 2019. But label changes, management changes, all kinds of things kind of got in the way, you know, um, which happens sometimes and you have to just sort of accept it and go, all right, well, whatever happens. And then when 2020 started the way that it did, um, I just thought there's no, what is the point of putting this out? We can't tour. We can't, um, I couldn't get to the studio to finish the bits that I needed to because we couldn't travel further than 5Ks and I live outside of Melbourne. And, um, yeah, there were just so many, there were all of these walls being put up in the way and I sort of, I would speak to my manager, George, all the time um, on the phone and just say, well, I think there's a reason for it, you know, like there's, we just have to trust that there's a reason that these blocks are being put here in the way on our way to finishing this. And I think a big part of the reason is that it wasn't, if I'd released it at the end of 2019 or even midway through 2020, it wouldn't be the record that it is now. I wouldn't be able to stand behind it with the vigour that I can stand behind it now because I'm so proud of it. Mm -hmm. And there wouldn't be that two years of um, different kinds of trials and evolutions and um, a process of ego death and things Mm -hmm. like that, you know, and no... I'm definitely still on that journey and it's a practice and it's something that is feels almost cyclical. You think that you've kind of got it all figured out and then, you know, the rug is pulled out from under your feet again. But I think that I needed that two years, the time to sit with the songs, sit with myself and really um, make it into a work of art rather than just like, let's get this out. Let's, you know, mm-hmm. tour, let's make money. You know, it was, that would be the wrong reason to be doing it. So yeah, it's a, it was definitely a blessing in disguise. Well, and also in terms of what is needed uh, in the culture, or we could say the zeitgeist for lack of a better term. I mean, I, I think the timing does feel right because everyone's still bruised and battered and healing. And uh, this this may continue for a while, this sense of needing reassurance and needing something beautiful, actually. Um, so, yes, if you popped it out in between lockdowns, then when things were still uncertain, I don't think that would have been the right time either. No, and I watched friends who are incredibly talented, who make amazing music, who made incredible records and then release them during the lockdowns and they kind of you know they make a little bit of a splash but everyone's so distracted by everything that's happening in the world that they didn't really get the attention that they deserved at the time and then you have this you know forty thousand fifty thousand dollar record that you've spent two years on that all of a sudden is released into the wind and it just kind of it didn't seem like a smart thing to do for us because mm-hmm. we're not, we don't have the backing of a major, major label that can go, okay, yeah, just go back into the studio and make another one. Why not? You know, yeah. we have to really be careful about decisions that we make around when we release things. And yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and talking about the, some of the individual songs now, the title track, The Real World, is uh, an elegy, but it's also a love song. I think it seems to be a born of love for this world, um, even though you're documenting that the, yeah, the real world is dying. Um, but I think it's also in a way as if the song is the solution um, because it is, an act, it is an act of love. It's, a, it's a, a song of love. So what inspired the writing of it? That one came very quickly out of nowhere. Um, I mean, I've definitely been interested in and worried about the state of the climate um, globally for a number of years, but it felt like with, um, you know, I think this was maybe written the year that we had some really severe fires in Australia. It was pre, pre-pandemic but it was written before I went to America, but not long before we went there. And there were kind of like extreme weather events happening globally. Um, And for me, it was just like I had been trapped in this pattern of writing love songs about someone that had hurt my feelings for a number of years. And I really, my focus was to start writing about different topics because I was like, I can't continue to, that's not offering anything to me. That's like, that's not offering anything, you know? So how can I um, use the platform that I have to make some kind of change about something that I care about? Um, And this was my way of doing that. Not necessarily consciously either. It was just something that I felt compelled to do. Um, Yeah. And it became more and more poignant across the couple of years that we waited for this Mm. album to be released as well. So, yeah, and the reason that it's the title track from the record is that, you know, all the other songs are fine and whatever, but that song I would have happily released as the entire album, just that one song. That was really the purpose. The purpose of this record was that song. Yeah. Yeah. But the opening track is Nobody's Better Than No One and um, and that's another one that I think offers the solution to the, the problem in the song <laughs> itself, you know, because it's basically saying no one. And it reminded me a line of an, um, in an Arnie, Frank, Arnie DeFranco song from years ago which she said, I don't think that I'm better than you but I don't think that I'm worse. Yeah, yeah, and that's I think that's line. Yeah, that's in, inherent in this song as well. And also, again, related to your practice, which is everyone is the, the same um, in so many ways. Uh even if social media would tend to tell us otherwise. <laughs> so, <laughs> so where, did, where did this particular song come from? Well, this one was written a long time ago. This was one from about six or seven years ago. And I've, after beginning a practice, looking back on lyrics from songs that I'd written years and years before I had any kind of spiritual awareness, um, I realised, oh, I was writing these songs about these themes that I, my spirit was like telling me, giving me these clues all the time. And they were coming out of the unconscious, you know, of the subconscious, they were coming out of like deep presence in that like moment of writing music, which is a meditative place. Mm-hmm. But I had no idea at the time. So I was just like, Oh, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> songs coming out. Okay. That's nice. Back to worrying about everything and overthinking everything and not doing any self-work. Um, yeah, so that, that was one of those ones which now in present day I look back and I go, oh, I was really trying to give myself, my spirit was trying to give my ego lessons this whole time. And I, you know, <laughs> yeah, so that's where that one came from. Well, and it's so great that you happened to document it as well. A lot of people <laughs> in that position, there's no documentation of that process. 
Um, so in uh, track two, I think, uh, which is impossible to love, what I think is great about, or one of the things that's great about it is that you you sing, I'm impossible to love, but you don't actually sound unhappy about that. So it's, almost, it's, a, it's a mission statement almost. It started out as a song about somebody else, you know, about a relationship that I found quite difficult. Um, but when I listen to it now, when I sing the lyrics now, I see it almost as a conversation between me and myself which is that you know ego spirit thing again it was an, it was another one of those you know well you would know how human relationships are all about lessons um, <laughs> and sometimes it takes a few years after the situation to actually go oh that's what that lesson was okay I'm thankful for that yeah <laughs> yeah so impossible to love yeah that was one of those ones as well written from a, a place that I didn't really understand of the, the deeper kind of message that I was trying to give myself through song you know well, and now that you're saying that, that's a conversation between ego and spirit because it is I'm impossible to love, you're impossible not to love. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, that, that works beautifully. Yeah, yeah. It's a, This is quite nice. This is like a reflective practice in itself, having this conversation. So I appreciate it very much. Happy to do it, happy to do it. Um, now, a song that really captivated me, um, not more than the others, but just in a particular way, was Wilderness Tune. Um, and that's a soundscape in so many ways as well as a song. So I'm wondering what the spark for that was. Well, that song I wrote is a very, um, I was listening to a lot of, you know, Dolly Parton, Letter to Heaven era um, Dolly, and I wanted, I was trying to emulate her, and uh, it was a very country-sounding song, very simple country song. And when we went to record it in the States, that's another one that's old. It's six or seven years old. When we went to record it in the States, I was like, I want it to be heavy and dark and, you know, kind of ominous and, you know, like we're in outer space. And the guys, the Buick Six guys were like, no, it's such a beautiful song. And they did this really beautiful arrangement and it was all quite pretty and we came home and I we were listening to it in the studio and I was like, it's just not you know, it's beautiful, but it's not how I want it to sound. And so we redid it in the studio okay. in Brunswick West. We kept a few elements. I can't remember what bits we kept from the, the initial recording. And, um, and we just rebuilt the track in a more sort of sonic landscape um, rather than the obvious kind of beautiful, pretty sort of lovely country arrangement, which, you know, we sometimes play it live that way. Um, depending on how we're feeling, but I, I felt that it needed that sort of um, like like in the real world needed that kind of element of light and shade, not just the pretty beautiful side of life, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can certainly hear how it would be a pretty song, um, and perhaps as a B side that original version. Uh, but um, I, yeah, it works beautifully now. I'm not going uh, through all the songs because it's, that's for listeners to experience, but I did want to mention the, the final track, What a Tender Thing, because when I first heard that, I was like, is it something Sinatra would sing? Is it a, <laughs> is it a Bacharach song? You know, is it something that Karen Carpenter might sing? There are these, and, but I actually couldn't land on something. It has that classic sound about it, but then I couldn't actually think of which of those singers or other singers like Ella Fitzgerald might have sung it or whether it was Rogers and Hart or anything. So wondering whether you did have a, have an intention to write a classic sort of song like that because it's not it's not a 
Sacra love song. It's actually a bittersweet song. Yeah. Absolutely it is, yeah. Um, the song that inspired it was Stardust by Willie Nelson. Right. Um, which I became quite obsessed with listening to it. And when I was writing it, I wasn't really thinking of Willie Nelson per se. You know, I wasn't really thinking of that song, but that song had been on repeat in my car for probably three months leading up to when I wrote What a Tender Thing. Um, so that's sort of the the place that it occupies in my mind as far as like the keynote person who I would, um, you know, refer to if I was referring to that song. But it, yeah, it was very much a, just a bittersweet love song about acknowledging that, you know, though though a relationship has beautiful moments that it's not always made to last and, you know, there are things that can pull you apart from one another that you're not expecting and then you know you have a version of someone that you believe is real and then there's the version of them that they actually are and you know the that narrative um yeah yeah well it works beautifully and it is a lovely conclusion it was part of me that thought oh I wonder what it would be like a wilderness tune finished the album, but then every time I would listen to the whole thing, I think, no, no, it's ended on the perfect place. It's funny because that was exactly my question with the record when I was doing the track listing. I was um, wanting to finish with wilderness tune and I had it set in stone the whole time. Opening the centre and the last track, it was nobody's, the real world is the centrepiece and then Mm -hmm. wilderness tune is the closing track. And every time I listened to it, I was like, no, I think we'll, I think what a tender thing needs to be last. It just is that you know it's a last little exhale um, before people go on with their life. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, since you mentioned that you're teaching yoga, and I know a bit on the, about that subject, um, part of what I've always felt about teaching, um, and it's it's a hard it's hard to do, is holding the space for people. But that is something that as a live performer in particular, I would imagine you have a lot of experience with. So I'm wondering whether your experience as a live performer has fed into your teaching or whether there are some things from teaching that you are taking into performance. Definitely. So far, I haven't taught many classes. I'm I'm only about three weeks into actually teaching um, and I still feel like an absolute fledgling with it as well. Even though I've had a yoga practice for a long time, it's a very different thing teaching. Mm-hmm. Um, but I definitely think that the skills that I've learned from performing music live transfer so well across to teaching yoga. Mm-hmm. It is really about deep presence and it's really about um, creating, creating an experience for other people mm-hmm. and what that room needs at that particular moment in time, yeah. um, you know, because you might have something in your head about, you know, and there's, a, there's an ego death that happens with teaching as well. I was talking to a teacher about this. I'm like, oh, I'm, I know that I'm still in my ego with teaching a bit and it comes up occasionally mm-hmm. and I just have to remind myself, you know, this is for other people. This isn't about you, you know. This is about mm-hmm. giving people healing. And um, so, yeah, I think that they are sort of parallel kind of jobs or, you know, what, you know, uh, roles or pathways you know they're a very similar kind of act yeah yeah and in terms of reading the room which yes you have to do in both of those roles um but because you have played a lot of shows uh, now that's something you have a lot of experience with I'm wondering if you feel also like performance or teaching is creative flow or whether 
you feel that 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 space is so contained it's that performance it's that class that actually you don't feel like there's anything flowing through there so much as just trying to command and control that room in a way if that makes sense I think it has to be a bit of a balancing act of both or that's what I found particularly with music um because you walk into it with a set list you walk into it with your own intention maybe not with the intention of being heckled by somebody from the back of the room for the whole show or you know like in one of my yoga classes recently, a guy brought his phone in and had his mat on an angle and just wasn't interested in being there but wanted to show up anyway. So you have to make space for those people um, regardless of situation. Uh, but, yeah, I think that there is those pockets of time when when you're teaching or when you're performing, they are very contained situations I try and find my own creative flow within that and if I'm not having a good show I find it is very contained and feels very strict and that there's no flow happening and when it's a great show it almost feels all flow and there's no containment there's no lid on it it's kind of just like freeing and you know there's a beautiful feedback loop of energy between you and the audience and no one's giving more to the other than the other way around you know um yeah, it depends on the room and the people and the, you know, if I'm a bit tired or grumpy or, you know, yeah. whatever it is. It is one of the great mysteries. I think most <laughs> of teaching and performance keeps it interesting, no doubt. Um, yeah. But as we're speaking about performance, your album's coming out at the end of September. Are you planning some shows to to offer it to people live? Absolutely. So we're doing throughout September every Wednesday night at Shot Kickers in Thornbury as a, in duo mode with my guitarist Tom Brooks. We're going to be playing the songs from the album Paired Back um, every Wednesday night. Uh, we're playing the CW Stone King in Mooney Ponds on the 29th of September. Uh, then we're at Dashville Skyline um, performing there with the full band on the Sunday. And then the following weekend we're at Out on the Weekend And the weekend after that, we're at Marysville Music Weekend. And then we'll be in Beechworth, I think, the weekend following that. So we've got quite a few things coming up. And there's probably more scattered between there that I've forgotten. But, yeah, there'll be quite a few opportunities for people to come and see us. Well, I think it will be a real treat to see these shows live for people who will see these songs perform live for those who can shows as well. Um, but in the meantime, they have the album and it, it is a real treat. It's a real work of art. And I sometimes hesitate to say that because that can make people feel like it's not for them. Um, but I think it's for everyone. And I think there are so many different things in there to keep finding that I encourage people to listen closely and often. Oh, that's so lovely. Thank you. Thanks for creating. Thank you very much for creating it. (laughs) Anytime. I'll be trying to do it again fairly soon. (laughs) As I said earlier, that's very exciting news for me. Um, Freya, it's been lovely to talk to you. (laughs) Lovely to talk to you too. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to the Sunburnt Country Music Podcast. For more Australian country music interviews and reviews and other things, go to sunburntcountrymusic.com or to Sunburnt Country Music on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok.